Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 4 for our New Testament reading. And then we will make our way to Genesis 15 and continue in our preaching there. Romans chapter 4 is Paul's exposition of our Genesis reading today. This is a very obvious example of a timeless truth and principle of scripture reading. Scripture successfully interprets scripture. And we shall see the Apostle Paul giving us much help to understand two verses in Genesis 15. Let us pray. Our most gracious God and Father, we come again, for we belong frequently before you, do we not? O Lord, this is your will and our delight and our need. We come again as needy beggars. Lord, we do not have within ourselves, according to our own nature, all that we need to receive your word. But you have all that we need, and you are pleased, you have told us, to give it to us, to ask, to seek, to knock. We, we have not because we ask not. Or we ask and don't have because we want to simply spend it on our passions. Oh Lord, subdue us. Separate us from those wild passions. And help us hear your word. Help us recognize your authority herein. Help us understand by faith all that you are indeed saying to us. Oh, may we recognize the voice of our master, our true shepherd, Jesus Christ. And may we indeed follow him and none other. Lord, come to us and bring us to yourself by that sweet voice, the voice of truth, the voice of love, the voice of power, the light, the law, the gospel. Oh Lord, give us all that we need so that we do not remain in the dark. Deliver us, in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Romans 4, verses 1 through 13. This is God's word. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? 
It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Genesis 15 now. Two verses. Verse 5, verse 6. You'll recall that we are making some progress. Genesis 15, 5. And he, the Lord, brought him, Abram, outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is God's word. Beloved, some 20 years ago, a young woman who had started attending a new church came to speak with the pastor. She had grown up in a church where she had always heard, God accepts us only if we are sufficiently good and ethical. Now she was hearing something very different. She was hearing that we can be accepted by God by sheer grace through the life and death of Jesus Christ, regardless of anything we do or have done. To this young woman, it felt like the very foundations of the earth were shifting underneath her feet. So she came to her pastor and said, that is a scary idea. Oh, it is a good scary, but still scary. Now the pastor was very curious. He asked, what is so scary about unmerited free grace? Here's what she said. And I'm going to read it from the book, The Prodigal God, page 136. She said, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. Her pastor said she had come to correctly understand the two edges of grace. On one hand, grace cuts away all slavish fear before God. God loves his chosen people freely, despite our flaws, despite our ongoing failures. But on the other hand, the other edge of grace... God's saving grace means we are no longer our own. All our debts have been paid off. And the one who who paid owns us completely. 
Whoever buys out your mortgage gets to tell you how to live in the house. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Now, beloved, it is this very grace that explains the life of Abram and the life of all his true spiritual children. Abram did not live his life before God like a taxpayer. He did not act like he had paid God off with this many good works, so God now owed him this many good things. He did not act like God could only ask for this much from him because God had only given this much to him. No. Abram lived as a man fully owned by God. Thus he is called the father of faith. There were no negotiations between him and God. You see, God had promised Abram everything up front. He had given Abram all the keys. God had put Abram's name on all the inheritance papers and had stamped them all with his divine seal and gave it to Abram. God said to Abram, this kingdom is yours. Ultimate human blessedness is yours. The renewal of the cosmos in a state of glory, it's yours. The forgiveness of all sins is yours. The love and the faithfulness of the Almighty is yours. I give this all to you freely without cost, Abram. It is yours. And though you do not fully see it, it is yours. It shall surely come to you. You shall surely come to it. As surely as I, the living God, have come to you with this word of promise, the things I have promised will come to you. Now, beloved, all I have just said there is what verse 5 of Genesis 15 is about. In Genesis 15:5, our Almighty God and Father sets the great promise of ultimate human blessedness before Abram on a table of grace. He sets it there and slides it over to this mortal man of the dirt. And this is not a counter at a retail store where Abram puts down what he can afford and God doles out a fair exchange of some good stuff, perhaps a bag or two. No. Sinners cannot afford anything that belongs to God. God must offer it freely to us by unmerited grace, or we cannot have it. So in verse 15, excuse me, in verse 5 of chapter 15, God freely offers a new world to Abram. Late at, the, late at night, the Lord calls his servant out to stand under the stars. And he says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. The Lord is promising Abram, who at the time was childless, whose wife was barren. The Lord is promising Abram that his offspring will be of a great number But the Lord is not only promising a great mathematical increase of children to Abram, 
He is also promising Abram radiant children who will rule the world just like the stars rule the night. This part of the promise is made crystal clear when the promise is repeated in Genesis 22, verse 17, to Abram. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Abram's offspring will defeat all the enemies of God's people. And we know from Ephesians 6.12, our enemies are not flesh and blood. They are the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Genesis 15.5, it is then a promise that by God's grace and power, Abram and his offspring will defeat sin and Satan and death and all the corruptions of this present evil age. Genesis 15.5 is the promise, as put in Romans 4.13, the promise to Abram and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. A world to come where death has no sting, evil has no power, a world where justice and righteousness rule and peace and blessedness are rich and deep and uninterrupted. That world is coming. That world shall come. A world where there is a great and everlasting city and the city has no need of a sun or a moon to shine in it. For the glory of God gives the city its light and its lamp is the Lamb of God. And by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into this city and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. This promise was being set before Abram in verse 5 on a table of grace, meaning he could not earn it. He could only receive it. Now, when God holds out everything to you and promises you it is yours, you do not start digging around in your pants pocket for loose change as if you could afford to buy what he's giving. You cannot afford the kingdom of God, beloved. You cannot afford ultimate human blessedness. You cannot afford the forgiveness of all your sins. You cannot afford a new heavens and earth in a renewed cosmos. You cannot afford eternal life, free of judgment, in unbroken communion with God and saints and angels forevermore. You can't afford that. You and I cannot afford these things. As sinners, we are already in deep debt with God, so deep we can never work our way out. No good works of yours, no religious works of yours, no toiling flesh of yours, no sighs, no tears of yours, no prayers of yours can afford these good things from God. But you can have them all. You can. You can have them all by grace. And beloved, this is what verse 6 
of Genesis 15 is about. In Genesis 15, 6, the Lord wants us all to see how Abram received the great promise of ultimate human blessedness. We need to see how because Scripture tells us later that Abram is the spiritual father of all the others who received the promises the same way he did. So we need to know how he received them if we are to be his offspring. So what does verse 6 say? It says, And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Abram became a full and legal and proper recipient of the great promise of God by faith. By faith. By faith. He did not receive the great promise by making promises of his own to God. He did not receive the great promise by pushing his good works across the counter to God. He did not receive the great promise by showing God some intense emotional energy. Not intense emotional energy of regret, nor intense emotional energy of jubilation. No, Abram received the great promise by faith. It was his faith that put him in full legal possession of the promised inheritance. It was not his good works. It was not his good worship. It was not his being a good neighbor. Now, he, of course, soon had all of those things. But it was none of those things that put Abram in full and legal possession of his inheritance. A world to come of ultimate human blessedness and communion with God could only be put in this mortal man's possession through faith. Now think with me a little minute about verse 6 more. Note carefully what it says. Note that it says, Abram believed the Lord. Abram believed the Lord. Abram's faith had a very personal object, the Lord God. To help us see this more clearly, let me contrast for a moment what verse 6 is saying with several things it is not saying. It is not saying Abram believed a philosophical framework or a metaphysical framework. It is not saying Abram believed a theological framework written down by his ancestors. It is not saying Abram believed a doctrinal statement drilled into him by his Sunday school teachers. It is not saying any of those things. It says Abram believed the Lord. Abram certainly had a metaphysical framework. You cannot not have one. And he had the right one. He certainly had a theological framework. He certainly had a system of doctrine. And he would want to press all of those upon us too. But the faith that is being highlighted in verse 6 and recalled and exposited in Romans 4 and recalled and exposited in Galatians 3 and recalled and exposited in James 2, all three of those texts in the New Testament take up this very same verse. The faith that is being highlighted and celebrated 
in verse 6 would not be the faith we are to take notice of unless it was faith in a person, the Lord. Abram's faith had taken hold of God himself. Beloved, this is saving faith. The faith that God is true in all he has said, in all he has promised. Saving faith is not just knowledge of and assent to certain statements about God that men have written for us. Saving faith is not just getting an A-plus in your religion class. Beloved, saving faith is not memorizing all the answers to the catechism. Now try to give me money to say that those things don't help you. You cannot find enough money to get me to say that. But they will hinder you if you think they are saving faith. Knowledge and assent are, of course, very helpful to saving faith and necessary. But saving faith has something deeper, something higher than just knowledge and assent. Saving faith has trust in the personal being of the living God. Abram believed the Lord. Here's how the Westminster Confession so helpfully describes saving faith. By this faith, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself speaking therein. You see, the Christian has saving faith when he, yes, comes to the scripture, but even sees the Lord who is speaking behind the scripture, through the scripture. God himself, God himself, God himself. Faith takes hold of God himself. Now there's something else we must note from verse 6. It says, Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. We are to understand the second half of that verse as a statement that God justified Abram by his faith not by his works. Now we might say, hold on, pastor, verse 6 says nothing about works. And technically that is correct. But the Apostle Paul brings Genesis 15, 6 before the church in Romans 4 to show us Abram was counted as righteous before God, not by his works, but by his faith. In Romans 4, 4, 3, Paul says, for what does the scripture say? Oh, I, I, cannot, I cannot continue this sermon without making a comment about that. Beloved, right there is the quintessential, the question of par excellence for all Christians. What do the scriptures say? I always want to know what Augustine says. I want to know what Calvin says. I want to know what Luther says. I want to know what this catechism says. I really do. But the question at the head of the class for everyone that rules over all earthly authorities and silences the mouth of men, even great clerical men, is what do the scriptures say? 
Notice your apostle's wonderful hermeneutic, his final authority, his chief light that answers and settles all controversies. What do the scriptures say? So back to Romans 4.3. For what does the scripture say? Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul quotes Genesis 15.6. And he immediately adds in Romans 4.4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see what Paul sees? Paul sees in Genesis 15:6 the word counted. And in that word, Paul recognizes the entire system of wages has been brought to the forefront of God's revelation. And Paul recognizes that Abram's wages from God have been handed over to Abram as a gift because Abram has believed the Lord. This makes clear to Paul that Abram's wages, the promised inheritance, were not given on the basis of Abram's good works. Beloved, this means, as one author put it, the foundation for life with God is not human behavior, but rather the divine gift of righteousness by faith. That's the foundation. And on that foundation, all honorable and godly behavior is built to the glory of God. Or as J. Gresham Machen said, faith according to the Christian view means simply receiving a gift. To have faith in Christ means to cease trying to win God's favor by one's own character. Oh, blessed is the soul of man who knows God's favor without looking at his own character. But many people, many people even in churches don't want anything from God unless they have paid for it. They only want what they have earned. That what they want God to accept them, justify them, give them title to the glorious age to come based on their good works. Why? Because the natural man, sinful man, feels that there must be honor for himself. And so he thinks he can do things to put God in his debt, to make God owe him wages for his works. But the natural man is very blind. He does not know that by his actual sins and his original sin, he is so deeply in debt with God, he cannot work his way out. Well, then how did Abraham come to learn that faith did what his works could never do? Well, there's where we must remember the rest of our Bible. God chose Abram before Abram chose God. Grace goes all the way back. Nehemiah 9.7 says, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram 
and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. God graciously chose Abram to come to faith. If God had not chosen Abram for this, God would never have worked saving faith into Abram, and Abram would never have come to faith. To follow the scripture on this is, in this case, to agree with Augustine, who said God chooses us not because we believe, but that we may believe. So what then did Abram's faith do? Back to verse 6. It made him righteous. You know, we have heard this so often, especially in our Reformed churches. We have heard this so often. We perhaps are no longer startled by it like we should be. Abram's faith made him righteous. I don't know if I'm going to be able to help you be startled properly, but, but I'm going to try a little bit. By faith, not works, Abram acquired that which only belongs to God. By faith, not works, a mortal of the dirt, a fallen son of Adam, a disgraced son of Eve, acquired that which only belongs to the immortal God. Righteousness. By faith, a man of clay acquired a divine grace of righteousness. By faith, not works, Abram was made clean. A man who has faith needs no works to make him righteous. A man who has faith needs no works to save him. Because faith alone abundantly confers all these things. By faith, we take full and legal possession of the inheritance, just as if we had always been the most obedient sons in God's house. You see, righteousness belongs to the Father and the Son. How has it come to a mortal? How is it that God gives something that belongs to himself to a sinful man like Abram? He does this on the basis of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has come to earth and has taken what belongs to us sinners upon himself, and he is cursed for taking it. And he takes it so that he could put upon us what belongs to him, a righteousness that comes from above the stars. By faith, Abram suddenly is standing before God forevermore, as if he was the most obedient son in God's house. But Abram had not always been an obedient son in God's house. How can God regard him as righteous by something so light as faith? Well, beloved, faith is not light. 
when the object of it is Christ, the greatest offspring of Abram. You see, remember Genesis twenty-two seventeen: your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. It was a testimony to the coming Christ who would take our human nature so he could justify us, make us righteous with his divine nature. And so the New Testament speaks of this glorious exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Beloved, this means that by faith, we become as fully righteous before God as we are ever going to become, even though we have decades of growing to do. But we grow in our standing of righteousness that will not be revoked or taken away. And how did we acquire it? By faith. Abram and his offspring were not ever going to possess the gates of their enemies by achieving a level of human excellence in their own persons. They were going to do it by faith in the one promised offspring, Jesus Christ. And it has already been done. He has already been crucified for our sins, already been raised for our justification, already been enthroned at the right hand of God, and the new creation has already begun in him who now keeps our nature forevermore with his divine nature. And so the writer of Hebrews rightly says, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of suffering death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Beloved, praise be to God that God comes by his word and speaks and we recognize who is speaking. And in that recognition, we are given faith. And by faith, we are made righteous. And by that righteousness, we are recognized as sons of the house. And by that title of sons, we are conferred an an inheritance. And God speaks to us as heirs of the renewed cosmos and says, it's yours because you are my righteous sons. And you might say, well, pastor, I don't think God has ever come to me like that. I say to you, what have you been doing for the last 30 minutes? He has come to you today. This is how he comes. He draws near through a preacher who opens his word, a foolish man whose kids can barely stand his dad jokes. But even so, in this pulpit, on this day, in this service of worship, the living God, the Lord upon whom Abram believed, draws near, and all who recognize that it is the Lord who is speaking to them 
they believe, or they are renewed in their faith, and they are assured that they are righteous and they are the true heirs of ultimate human blessedness in the renewed cosmos, where there will be no more tear, where there'll be no more evil, no more death, no more conflict, no more war, no more doubt. Revelation 2.17 ends our sermon. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we ask that it would please you to come in power and let your authority, your divinity be revealed to those whom you are calling to faith. Father, save even today by the power of your word. Give grace to those whom you are saving not to look upon their works, not to say I've done the most terrible things, I cannot come to Jesus. Or not to say, I'm pretty good, I don't need to come to Jesus. Oh Lord, let them not be damned by looking upon their works. Let them look upon the one offspring of Abram who has taken the possession of his enemy's gate and has cast down the ruler of this world, the devil, and has broken the power and dominion of sin over his elect, and who now takes captive from all nations those who long languished in darkness and unbelief, comes to them and opens their heart by a word. Do it here today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.